man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nathaniel, if I haven't met you yet, and I have the privilege of working with our youth here at BPCC, and I'm going to be opening up this passage of scripture for us this morning. Uh, But first, let's take a moment to come to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you uh, for your awesome word. We thank you that you've given this to us. We thank you that we're able to come here this morning and hear it read and then think about it and unpack it a bit for our lives here today, Lord. We pray that you'll bless it to our hearts as we're grown in faith to reach the world and to reach others around us with the awesome news of your gospel. Amen. It's a classic scene. An iceberg has pierced the hull of the Titanic. The ship is going down. There is no way to save it. Within hours, it will be at the bottom of the freezing Atlantic Ocean. Yet, on board the ship, passengers are laughing, drinking, partying, going on as normal. Most of them are unaware of the doom that's about to befall them. They don't know that they are rapidly sinking into a freezing, watery grave. In one scene of the movie Titanic, uh, Rose, knowing that they had hit an iceberg, is talking to the captain and she asks him whether the ship is going down. She pleads with him to tell me the truth. Is the ship sinking? He replies that the ship will indeed sink and that she should should get to a lifeboat as quickly as possible. Now, the captain didn't like that reality. He did not like the fact that the ship was sinking. He definitely didn't want to have to tell people that they were heading to a certain death. He certainly would have been much happier if everything was okay 
and his ship could just continue on its way. He could have lied and said that it would be fine. That might have made Rose happier for a little while, but it would guarantee her death once the ship sank. But he spoke the truth to say that getting to a lifeboat is vital. And in many ways, we are in a similar situation. We are in a world that is irreparably broken and which is headed towards certain destruction. And we not only need to get ourselves to safety, we also need to warn others that the ship is sinking. This is what we learn from the passage that we're looking at today. The parable that Jesus told about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. It confronts us with both the reality of heaven and of hell and it will challenge us about where we are putting our hope for eternity. We'll explore this parable under, under three headings. We'll explore three different parts of what God's saying to us here. First, the eternal consequences of this life. Second, the permanent reality of the next. And third, the only way to heaven. So the eternal consequences of this life. In the previous chapter, Luke chapter 15, Jesus told three parables about how much, G, how much God loves the lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin and the prodigal son. Then in chapter 16, he provides a contrast to these parables with two parables showing how much people love money. The first was the parable that Ben spoke on last week. If you, if you are here, you'll remember the parable of the dishonest manager about using our resources to serve God rather than worshipping mammon. Mammon being that word that they use for the idol that we as humans create out of worldly wealth and resources of any kind. After Jesus told that parable, the Pharisees, they were the, the rich religious rulers who acted very religious and proper, but really worshipped mammon. They ridiculed him. They laughed in Jesus' face because of what he said. So Jesus goes on to tell them the parable we're looking at this week. He tells them this parable describing the eternal importance of where we put our faith and how we use our wealth. He tells them of this rich man, incredibly wealthy, he feasts on delicious food. He wears fine linen and clothes of purple, which was a very expensive and hard-to-find colouring back then. Then he tells of a poor man named Lazarus. He's clearly very sick. Dogs are licking his sores. Back then, the rich were expected to provide for the poor, so he's placed on the doorstep of the rich man. But he's given nothing. Now, hearing this intro, the audience would have immediately assumed that Jesus was talking about a blessed man and a cursed man. Because back then, a lot like, they do, like people do today, uh, they assumed that to have material wealth meant that God must be blessing you. You must be getting rewards for being a good person. And they assumed that being poor or unwell meant that God was punishing you for something bad you had done. But then Jesus gives a plot twist. Both these men die, but Lazarus, the one who had suffered so much, the one who was poor and who was sick, he's taken to heaven by angels. He's comforted in the arms of Abraham. He has peace and comfort and rest 
But on the other hand, we have a grim image of the rich man, the one who lived his life in luxury, ignoring the needy, enjoying sinful excess, never turning his heart to God. He's now a man in torment. He's now desperate for relief and he's wishing he could stop his brothers from reaching the same fate. And we see that for both of these men, it wasn't their status in this world or their wealth which directed where they went in the next. It was where they had placed their faith. Because the state of our hearts in this world shapes our eternity. And that parable follows the theme from Ben's message last week to its natural consequences. You can't serve both God and money. You can't be saved from the fate of this world while worshipping its riches. And the fate of the rich man illustrates this for us. He has served mammon his whole life rather than serving God and he has received the reward that mammon gives him. Romans 6.23 explains that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the rich man has received the wages of death. As Ben shared last week, this, this idea is a big challenge for us in our Western context, where money is one of the biggest idols for our culture. Even as Christians, there's the popular lie that if you're a good Christian... God will bless you with greater wealth. If you do certain things, give certain amounts, have more faith, God will then fulfill your financial dreams. And that's completely against what Jesus tells us. Having wealth doesn't show that we're more blessed by God. In fact, wealth can can often be an obstacle which conceals our real problem from ourselves. And that doesn't mean that having money makes you a worse person either. It means that there is no correlation between Christian faith and worldly wealth. You can serve God and have money, but you can't serve money and have God. This idol of mammon is a big trap for us today, although it can look different for each person. Some might look to the rich man in our parable and think, He's set, that's a successful life. Others substitute the idol of your choice. Could be money, fashion, property, cars, popularity, people. You can easily spend your life pursuing that thing. And that's the concept of a functional God. We don't say that we worship it, but we feel like we have to have this thing so that we can be happy. It seems like a good and worthwhile thing for us and in in our search for it we reveal the depths of our brokenness. Look at the attitude of the rich man. On earth he has no care for Lazarus. He's busy with his own wealth, his own happiness, enjoying his luxury. Even in hell he treats Lazarus as his water boy. In verse 24 he asks Abraham to send Lazarus into hell just to make himself a little bit more comfortable. All too often, we can put gaining our idol, serving mammon, ahead of caring for the people around us. We trample over others in the pursuit of our own pleasure. One of the most famous theologians of the early church was a guy called Augustine. 
He wrote in his book, City of God, when we look into ourselves, we can see and smell the fires of hell burning within us. And that's a true statement. When we examine our own hearts, we don't find ourselves to be good and virtuous, perfect people. Rather, as humans, we're a people who desperately need saving. We need someone to fix us. And so the state of our hearts is of eternal importance because where we are in the eyes of God, whether we've been saved through faith in Jesus, is of immense eternal importance because once we finish our lives here on earth, there's no going back. And that's what we see in the the second major theme, the permanent reality of the next life. This parable shows that once we get to our eternal destinations, there is nothing that we can do to change where we are or affect where anyone else is going. The fate of the rich man, it stands as a, as a stark warning for us. It's a clear reminder of the reality of hell. We speak of heaven and new creation often, and it's easy to talk about hope and joy and peace. You may recall that I had the honour of preaching on Revelation 21 a couple of months ago, one of my favourite passages. It's an incredible passage of encouragement for us. But the alternative is just as real and it's just as permanent. The stark truth of the matter is that while many, hopefully all of us, will spend eternity in eternal restoration with God, there will also be many who spend it in eternal suffering, eternal separation from God. That's something which was so important that Jesus spoke about it very often. In fact, he refers more in the Gospels to hell than he does to heaven because it's an incredibly important topic. But it's also a truth that we don't really like to talk about as Christians today. Maybe that's because it scares us. Maybe that's because it embarrasses us. Maybe we have an underlying thought that it isn't really fair that some people go to heaven and some people go to hell. Maybe because it's been overemphasized in the past and people have made it seem like the key point of Christianity is to escape hell so we don't want to bring that up around others who might have had a bad experience there. Maybe because we just don't like thinking about it. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist. He wrote in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian. There is one serious defect in my mind to Christ's moral character, and that is that he believes in hell. I do not feel myself that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. And that's the attitude which many people have to the concept of hell. Many Christians will even say that hell isn't real. After all, if God is love, how could hell be real? And that's a tough question, but there are a couple of very important truths for us to keep in mind here. First, that hell is necessary because God's glory is real and our sin is actually really serious. J.D. Greer, a pastor over in the US, says, We don't think that hell is severe because we don't think much of trampling on God's glory. 
When we sin against God, when we reject him and push him away, we're not like cute little kids running around, being a little naughty, it's all in fun. No, we're defying and desecrating and rubbishing the creator of the universe. Our God, who is more loving than we could ever possibly imagine, but also more righteous, more just, more mighty than we could ever imagine. And we're spitting in the face of God's creation when we use it to defy him. Because as shocking as it might seem, the universe isn't about humans. It's not about us. It's a theatre that's there to show God's glory, to glorify him. So to reject God's glory is a monumental affront to all of creation. And God is both completely loving and also completely just. He's full of a righteous anger at sin, and that's an anger which is just, fueled by a love for his creation and directed at the sin which has damaged it. And so hell, this terrible thing, an eternal punishment in separation from God, it isn't an exception to God's love, which he has to quickly cover up with Jesus. But it's an indescribably terrible thing which highlights the seriousness of our rebellion against God. But, as an indescribably terrible thing, it magnifies what Jesus has been through for us. Because we all, without exception, do deserve to be judged for our our rebellion. But the awesome gospel message is that God has taken that punishment onto himself. He has offered us a way to be reconciled with him. Jesus on the cross cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had torn himself apart. God had separated himself from himself to take that punishment. He descended into hell for our sin. So seeing how much it cost God to save us shows how much he loves us. An undeserved grace. Because the reality of hell shows the enormity of God's love for us. And without the reality of hell, Jesus' death is redundant. It's pointless. If the ship isn't sinking, if it isn't going down, if it's just cruising along to its destination as it should, then we don't need to be saved from it. If hell isn't real there's no point to Jesus saving us because there would be nothing that we need saving from. But the reality is that it is real. Water is rushing into this doomed ship and we desperately need to be saved because every one of us is broken by sin and can't save ourselves. So when you take the truth of our sinful condition and that eternal judgment out of the gospel message... It becomes irrelevant. Why would anyone need it? Why would anyone listen to it? What's so good about God's grace when there's no alternative? The gospel message is this, right? That although we are sinful and broken people who deserve God's wrath, despite that, he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for our sin, to take our place, that through faith in him, 
we can be forgiven and reunited to him. And that's an awesome, that's a great message. That's the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we're preaching it, when we're sharing it to others, we need to tell the whole truth. We need to share the complete gospel message. Not in a vindicative, you're a bad person and you're going to go to hell with all the other bad people sort of sense. No, not in that way. Not in an arrogant, oh, you're a sinner and I'm a good person. So you can be like me and avoid hell. Not in that sort of sense. Not in a judgmental, you're living the wrong way, live my way, and you can avoid the pits of hell sort of sense. Not in that sense. But rather, in the sense of, we are all on a sinking ship. We are headed for certain destruction. Please listen. You're in a serious situation. But there's a way out. I've been saved from this fate. There's a free salvation that's been earned for us. Please open your eyes and see the urgency. I don't want you to go down with the ship. In that sort of sense. Out of a love for the people that we're speaking to. Because every single person who hasn't put their faith in Jesus is headed toward an eternal separation from God. A lonely, terrible eternity. And that's a really hard truth. It's hard to accept, it's hard to listen to, it's hard to think about, it's hard to say. But it is the truth. And we need to be convicted by the true state of the world and go out into the world with an urgency. Because there is hope, right? There is salvation through Jesus. He has paid the debt. He has provided a way out. He has broken the shackles of sin which hold us tight and he has set us free. But then I look at my life and I don't see a level of urgency to reach others which matches the seriousness of this truth. Why is that? Why is it that our passion for evangelism, our passion to tell others about the fact that the ship is sinking, why is it that so often fades? In part because we as Christians, we often don't fully appreciate or remember the seriousness of the situation. In part because we're broken people. We live in a broken world. And our motives often fall far short of being perfect. In part because we easily become acclimatised to the awesome gospel message that we have. This amazing message of truth, of salvation through Christ. We get used to the eternal grace of God and go on living as if nothing had happened. But the ship is going down. Unless they get to a lifeboat, every person on it is headed to certain death. And that's tragic. We as Christians know about this. We are not going to go down with the ship. We have an assurance of salvation if you've put your faith in Christ. But are we going to join in the party? Are we going to just enjoy ourselves until it's time to hop on the lifeboat? Or are we going to warn others of the danger and show them the way to safety? Because there's only one way to be saved. There's one route off the ship. There's one path to eternal life. Let's have a look at those final verses again. He, the rich man, answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, 
so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead was to go to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now that might seem crazy at first. You might be thinking, well, if X person I know, or maybe if I was to see someone raised from the dead, I'm sure they would turn to God. We could have this attitude of, if God is real and he really wants me to be saved, then he can show me a sign. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe and it's God's fault. But would a miraculous sign really cause us to start loving God? If we look at the past, people ignore signs no matter how wondrous they are. Look at all of the Bible, really. Israel in the desert, Elijah and Elijah, the miracles of Jesus himself, the acts of the apostles, People rejected God after each one. And that's because miracles are not there to convince people. They are there to confirm what is true. After all, after Jesus gave this parable, someone did rise from the dead in the most spectacular, amazing event of all of world history. Jesus himself. And his resurrection is probably the most striking example of this. Soon after Jesus told this parable, he was killed on the orders of the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders that he told this parable to. And then he rose from the dead. And they had all the evidence they needed to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that it was real. And yet, because they were comfortable in their situation, because they wanted to continue worshipping mammon rather than God, They chose to hide that truth. Instead of repenting and glorifying God, they tried to cover it up by bribing the guards who had seen the angels roll away the stone. Faced with Jesus himself, having seen his miracles, having all the most powerful truth you could possibly imagine, they still rejected him. Because there is no miracle which will convert a heart which is set on rejecting God. And that's the most heartbreaking thing, to know that there are people who are happy in the party. They're set on staying on the sinking ship and nothing is going to convince them of the approaching danger until they experience it. And therefore, our tool for evangelism, our sword in the fight, is the tool that God has given to us. It's his word. Because that is what the Spirit uses to change our hearts. That's why we preach the Word, right? That's why we preach the Gospel of Jesus. That's why we invest in Scripture, because as 1 Corinthians tells us, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To reach the lost to convince them of their need for the incredible, amazing grace of God, we have to rely completely on Scripture. That's why we preach it. That's why we study it in our growth groups. 
That's why we spend time in it every day, because it is the word of God which breathes life into us. And this final verse is also an encouragement to us in evangelism, in our efforts to warn people off the sinking ship, because whether they come to faith in Jesus is not dependent on us. If even a miracle won't convince them, then our human efforts aren't going to be the thing which saves someone. It's our responsibility to share the gospel, right? Both through our words and through our lives. But whether this leads to repentance, that's between them and God. It's dependent on how the Holy Spirit works in their hearts and how they respond to his power. So we don't need to be paralysed by a fear that we might get it wrong. We don't need to worry, I don't have enough experience, I don't have enough faith, I don't have enough theology. We should seek to grow in those things, but we will never save someone by our own skill in those areas. We are God's hands and his feet in the world. We're the tools which he uses to shape hearts. He is the head, he is the craftsman, and as long as we're following his leading, we're on the right path. My Wednesday evening youth growth group, uh, we talked about this recently and they really latched onto the concept really well. They've got a, a great mantra for remembering it. They say, just be a tool. Be a complete tool. That's how you do evangelism. Just remember, we're tools. Easy. But seriously, remember those pillars which our faith can be summed up in. We're saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, given by grace alone. Revealed through scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. So as we wrap up, I've got two questions for you. First, are you on the lifeboat? Is your heart in the right place with God? And second, does your life reflect this? Does the way that you live show that you're desperately trying to help others off the sinking ship? First, if you're not sure where you're going, get that sorted out. This is not an unimportant thing, some little issue which you can sort out later on. You know, when, I, when I'm older, when I'm further along in life, 50 years from now, you know, I'll, I'll start thinking about this. When I start feeling a bit sick at the end, then I'll start thinking about God, that'll, that'll sue me. No, because first, in this life, Christ changes us and transforms us, and life with him is immeasurably better. Life with Christ is so much more fulfilling when you're in a relationship with the God who made us. And second, because you never know when this life is going to end. We could all be gone by this evening. Life is unpredictable. So if you don't know where you're going, please get that sorted out. If you're not certain that Jesus has saved you, if you don't know for sure that you're covered by the work of Christ, please take this, ch- this chance to put your faith in him. Have a chat to a Christian you know. Come and talk to one of the staff here at church. Because you have to decide to accept this gift. And second, if you have accepted that, that's awesome, that's great. I encourage you to question yourself, look at yourself and say, does my life reflect this? Do I live and do I use my resources in a way which shows that I know that I'm on a sinking ship and I really want to see other people off the ship as well? Because being a Christian isn't a game. 
if we really understand the seriousness of our situation, we would spend the rest of our lives desperately pleading with everyone we know to get off the sinking ship. We don't focus on reaching more people for Christ because we want to get a bigger building or we like having more numbers or anything like that. It's because we are convinced that both heaven and hell are real. And that's why we want to reach as many people as we can, reach new groups, new communities, serve and expand and show God's love to the world because we believe this and we believe that life with God is freely available. The gospel isn't a dark, grim news of judgment. It's the good news that Jesus has saved us from that. We're not trying to convince people to avoid hell, but to experience the heaven of a relationship with God, which will last for all of eternity, and which has been freely secured for us by Jesus. Let's pray and thank God for that. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you that we could open up your word this morning and talk about the reality of our eternities, Lord. We pray that you'll be with us, that you'll guide us, that you'll grow us, that um, you'll continue to grow us in you as we go through our weeks, that we will reach others and, and grow on ourselves, that we'll be convicted of the fact that we are on a sinking ship and be inspired by your love for us and the salvation you've won. In your name, Amen. Church, in response, we're going to stand together. Let's stand and worship God in song. And as we heard this morning, let's use this song to confess and acknowledge our brokenness or our pain or our hurt and then admit and acknowledge and reach to the Saviour that we need. As Jesus said soon after he preached that parable, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost.